everybody. Welcome to the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly podcast. Today, the topic is how to talk to people about their breathlessness. My name is Dr. Hayley Luthwaite, and joining me today are Drs. Mari Williams and Kylie Johnston, both from the University of South Australia in Adelaide. So Mari and Kylie, would you like to first start by um, just doing a quick introduction of yourselves and so telling the audience about um, who you are? Hi, Hayley, and and thank you and the ATSPR Assembly for the opportunity to talk about breathlessness. Um, So I'm Murray Williams. I'm a physiotherapist or physical therapist by profession, and I'm a professor of physiotherapy at the University of South Australia, Adelaide. I've spent the majority of my career involved in teaching and research training of physios and other allied health professionals. I've had a really long-standing interest in all things related to assessment and management of lung disease. And my interest in chronic breathlessness started back maybe in the 2000s when I started doing a lot more reading and thinking about um, my lack of understanding about breathlessness and the language of dyspnea and how descriptors of breathlessness um, are more than just random thoughts and they really reflect physiological and psychological mechanisms. So maybe I'll stop there. Um, thanks, Haley, And my name's Kylie Johnston. I'm also working as an associate professor at the Uni of South Australia. So there I'm a, a researcher. I teach into the physiotherapy program and I'm also a clinical physiotherapist. And my uh, work is also focused on the care of people with chronic lung conditions. Um, my research started sort of broadly focused on supporting people with chronic lung conditions to be active, Um, looked at exercise and behaviour change in both children and adults, which took me to pulmonary rehabilitation. And then uh, since 2017, I was fortunate to have um, an Australian Churchill Fellowship where I could travel to the UK and Canada investigating a bit more about the non-drug management of chronic breathlessness. So that sort of got me um, working more in that area uh, here with Mari. So before we get into how to talk about breathlessness, Do you want to start by just providing a bit of an overview of breathlessness? So who experiences it um, and is there anything that can be done specifically to treat or manage breathlessness above and beyond managing people's underlying conditions? Okay, well, maybe I'll start by just clarifying a few terms. Okay, so I know that speaking to this audience in the PR assembly, they're very familiar with the term dyspnea, and everyone has an actual working definition of this term of being uncomfortable or distressed breathing. And that term's really familiar and useful for health professionals communicating with each other. But it's not generally a term that people experiencing this sensation might commonly use. So in the last decade or so, there's been a move to use the term breathlessness or short of breath. So I might just note also at this point that when we talk about the sensation of breathlessness, it's a really broad landscape and it's not always distressing or unpleasant. So in some situations, athletes, for example, they might describe the experience or the sensation of being short of breath as quite pleasurable. They might see it as a sensation that tells them they've worked really hard, expect it, and they might look forward to it. But when I'm talking about breathlessness or being short of breath, I'm usually talking about that sensation which is uncomfortable or distressing. 
And perhaps we might infer that there's a really strong and consistent relationship between increases in breathlessness and distress or unpleasantness of that breathlessness and the severity of the underlying pathology. And obviously, if we can work out what the cause is, we can do something about it, and perhaps the breathlessness will also be fixed or reduced. And that can be true in lots of situations. But the relationship between severity of breathlessness and the severity of the pathological impairment is not always a one-to-one relationship. And that's especially true when people have been living with a progressive chronic condition where being short of breath or breathless is a really common daily experience. So the term chronic breathlessness has recently come into our lexicon to describe a clinical state where people live with persistent disabling breathlessness, but all causes have been explored and the breathlessness persists despite optimal optimal medical management. So when I'm talking about breathlessness or being short of breath, I'm usually talking about this chronic state where people have all causes explored, they're on the best possible medical management, but they've still got this breathlessness, which is quite impactful and disabling in their daily lives. So breathlessness as a sensation has a lot of complex central processing, and that also includes things like learning and associations with past experiences, expectations of future exposures. And this sensation, like other sort of primary sensations, like pain and thirst and hunger, is always also modified by mood and anxiety. So there's a lot more going on in the brain than just a ventilatory drive reacting to sort of afferent in input from multiple systems. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to let Kylie take over. So I guess I would just add to address a little bit the second part of your question, Hayley, which we will go on further. So while Mari's really well described the complexity of the breathlessness beyond the um, sort of pathological contributions, it it does open up a whole range more of um, potential strategies to address it just as it has for chronic pain. And so while we sort of don't yet have a magic bullet, which will completely cure breathlessness, there is a range of both um, drug and non-drug interventions, especially the non-drug interventions, which of course includes pulmonary rehabilitation that are underused to help manage chronic breathlessness. And I guess just in short, the lights really went on for me in understanding and opening up these opportunities to impact breathlessness when I was introduced to the work of I suppose mostly the Cambridge Breathlessness Intervention Service and the breathing, thinking, functioning clinical model that they developed. So I'm starting really over the last 20 years. Um, So this conceptualised these sort of emotional and behavioural responses to breathlessness that leads to these vicious cycles that inadvertently um, go on to worsen the symptom. And I guess I was particularly familiar with the one around functioning, which pulmonary rehab seeks to address, where because people become breathless, they might tend to avoid activity and become isolated and sort of do less and less. And then that um, exacerbates that vicious cycle of the muscles involved in moving and, and breathing becoming less, less fit. 
but then opening up the other cycles um, to do with breathing strategies, to do with thinking strategies, which I'm sure we'll explore to go on. So the, the idea that, yes, beyond um, optimal medical management, there, it, there really are a lot more things that can be done. So that's all um, a very interesting overview of breathlessness. And what I got from that is that firstly, it is really complex um, and that we can't predict what someone might be feeling in terms of their breathlessness based on maybe resting um, physiological testing, like spirometry testing, for example, in people who have COPD. And then it means different things to different people. But I think an important part um, that you touched on, Kylie, is that there is something that can be done still. So even though we have this chronic breathlessness syndrome that seems to um, persist despite optimal management of people's underlying condition, that doesn't mean that there isn't um, anything else that can be done. And I think that is a really um, important key point to take away um, from this. So I guess going on from that, um, why do you think it is important to talk about breathlessness? It is really complex. So why do we need to talk about it? And specifically to people who might be experiencing breathlessness. And then who should start these conversations? So who is responsible for that? Okay, well, maybe I'll start by um, talking about why I think it's important to talk about breathlessness. Well, chronic breathlessness is extremely common. It can be really unpleasant, it can be frightening, and it impacts on how people live their lives. It results in suffering, both the person and their family. It's costly in terms of emergency department attendances and healthcare. But if you want sort of big numbers and epidemiological basis for that, the presence and severity of breathlessness can be an independent predictor of mortality. So even after adjusting for age, smoking history and lung function, in people with COPD, even mild breathlessness, so MRC scores of two, are associated with increased disease severity and with risk of exacerbation. And in some studies, breathlessness has been shown to be a much more sensitive predictor of five-year survival than lung function values. So I think it's absolutely worthwhile talking about breathlessness. If we swapped out the word chronic breathlessness for chronic pain and asked people whether we think it's important to talk about chronic pain, I think there'd be very few health professionals who would question why we wouldn't, you know, of course we would talk about it, we'd ask about it, and we'd want to do something about it. So maybe one other way to actually think about why it's important to talk about chronic breathlessness is that a, you know, a basic tenet of current westernised medicine is that explaining pathologies and symptoms provides a starting point for patient-centred or shared care and decision-making. So interestingly, you know, the way we explain things and the way we shape people's knowledge about their pathologies and what to expect is a behaviour change technique. So I think all interactions, especially explanations, are low-resource interventions. They've got the possibility of changing misconceptions, or reaffirming people's beliefs and expectations of their health condition and symptom. Kylie, what do you think? Yes, well, I think you've sort of answered the question there about who should start these conversations given the impact of breathlessness. Um, so I guess it's important for 
all of us who do have therapeutic interactions with people who have chronic breathlessness or have a condition that we know predisposes them to that, to start having a conversation. Um, I think it's really valuable for, I guess, two big factors. Firstly, in itself, for people to have their experience as a breathlessness heard and acknowledged it's often an underassessed and a bit of a hidden symptom um, for reasons that we we will go into a bit further along our conversation so these people may for a whole range of reasons um, not not bring it up secondly as Mari as you said explanations are behavior change techniques themselves so they provide us an opportunity to um, if we think of the in the breathing thinking thinking functioning schema to compassionately perhaps challenge some misperceptions um, that are driving a vicious cycle around someone's fear and anxiety and thinking about breathlessness and another example was in the context of pulmonary rehabilitation you know um, challenging a, a perception there which can be therapeutic in itself for example people may not um, realize that choosing to make themselves moderately breathless by being active isn't harming themselves harming them in fact it's helping to build up fitness and will improve their breathing in the long run so again many practitioners of pulmonary rehab would be familiar with giving giving that message um, and knowing that that message is they part of the very important therapy in itself so following on from that um We've just talked about how there are many different health professionals who could talk to someone about their breathlessness. But do you think that most or many healthcare professionals actually want to talk about breathlessness when they have their interactions? Well, I think there are a lot of health professionals who do actively raise the topic. Okay, and so they do talk about it. And they ask specifically about what it feels like and when it occurs. But there is some evidence, as Kylie touched on, in terms of it being this symptom being a very underassessed and under-recognised symptom. And there are there is some evidence to suggest that health professionals actively avoid actually talking about breathlessness. There was a very nice paper published in 2019 um, by Sarah Lunn, which actually talked about why respiratory trainees didn't or actively avoided asking about breathlessness and the sorts of reasons that were raised were time pressures that you know there's very short time for consults um, not being confident about how to manage it um, or what resources or services that might be available I think the other thing that might be playing out in why people don't talk about it could be that Unlike pain, where everyone has had a personal experience of pain, not everyone has had a personal experience of really distressing breathlessness. So the sensation of an unexpected and non-life-threatening shortness of breath, so running up three or five flights of stairs, they don't really simulate that sensation of chronic breathlessness. It might be that one of the changes brought into our lives because of COVID, and I'm hesitating to say it's a good thing, but COVID has meant that millions more people have had a direct experience or they've witnessed distressing breathing. So this might play out in greater preparedness, if you like, to actually raise breathlessness as a sensation with people. 
so then talking about the health professional perspective, but what about people living with breathlessness? We've talked about how it can be really frightening um, and disabling. So given that, do you think that people who live with breathlessness want to actually talk about it when they see their healthcare professional? Um, I might take this one, Haley. So I think it does depend. Um, I think certainly when people, uh, the impact starts to get worse of the breathlessness, it's starting to shrink people's world, starting to affect their life choices, then um, I think that's when I often see people who are who are seeking help for breathlessness and do start to want to talk about it. So it's often, in my experience, a little bit late down the path. I think certainly if health professionals, as Mario was saying, are able to open the door to that conversation, um, it, it supports that. As you just said, it can be really challenging for people, though, because breathlessness is associated with very unpleasant um, emotions, with frustration with anger with loss and grief so if the therapeutic relationship is not such that they feel they can kind of open up about things and people with breathlessness may often also feel and perhaps have been told multiple times that nothing else can be done um, others may sort of have some acceptance and feel like oh I'm, I'm if it's come on gradually I'm getting older it's part of my disease it's to be expected um a group that sort of became visible, especially through the home-based breathlessness intervention services, is that carers do want to talk about breathlessness. So it's often um, very underestimated the distress that um, breathlessness brings to those caring for the person experience, experiencing it. We think this may often drive presentations to emergency department, but it's rarely addressed in the context of perhaps a, a clinic appointment if the family are not are not attending. But through assessment and through interventions that are home-based, we're really seeing firstly what a big impact it does have on carers and secondly that changes that involve the carers can really um, make a big difference. Yeah, I think the other situation where people often open up talking about is, is if they have experienced or watched a family member um, who has had advanced uh, disease and perhaps passed away having had breathlessness as a symptom at the end stage of their life. People often say to me, you know, I've watched my, my mother die with this and I feel that it's coming for me. So again, these are some of the things that um, open up the conversation for people. So it sounds like there are some really important conversations to have, but it also sounds like um, some words or explanations can be harmful or have a negative, leave a negative experience with the person, whereas some can be really positive. Um, so with that, how do we know as healthcare professionals what to say so that we aren't um, causing any harm and rather we're helping the person to um, better live with and cope with their breathlessness? Sure. So um, there have been... Um, so has been some research in this area and people like Sarah Booth, Miriam Johnson have highlighted some really important elements. We um, and yourself, Hayley, were all involved with um, a, a Delphi um, research process that looked at experts' opinions about what's helpful and what's harmful in conversations about breathlessness. And I suppose just sort of summarising these and we can go into some of them a little bit further along. I mean, one aspect is really important um, across all of these 
um, people agreed and also consumers to acknowledge the distress, the variability and the importance of the sensation that breathlessness, you know, is real, that it's distressing. I, secondly, I would add where it's known and diagnosed, absolutely acknowledge that pathological basis for, um, that Mari was talking about before, that mismatch between what the system's doing and what the system perceives needs to be done and the ways this is being optimised by medical care and pharmacological, but don't stop there. Um, acknowledge the complexity of breathlessness. So acknowledging that breathlessness is affected by what we think and what we feel and what we um, have previously experienced as well as by those signals coming from the body. So that's one side of it. And then the second side is emphasising the current breathlessness management principles. So uh, where breathlessness science is showing, firstly, the quick wins can be made, like Mari mentioned before, um, giving strategies that can help help people suffer from breathlessness in the moment and then pointing to strategies that take a little bit longer but are also evidence-based and effective such as exercise such as clarifying perhaps maladaptive beliefs and expectations and um, refer to or point to how to achieve this and this may involve um, health health and sort of social care strategies across quite a quite a wide spectrum. Yeah, so they all sound like very positive things um, that we can communicate to people living with breathlessness. What about on the other end of the scale? What do you think are common misperceptions around breathlessness that we should try to not pass on to those people who are living with breathlessness when we talk to them about it? Well, as you know, Haley, this is a very big question of interest to us. And keeping in mind that every one of us as health professionals interacting with someone with symptoms of breathlessness are going to always base our explanations and convey our own understanding and expectations and beliefs about breathlessness. So as part of that Delphi, we also ask people um, about what would they avoid? What would they try not to misinform or convey if they were talking to someone living with this symptom? And there are some really useful things there that trying not to convey or trivialise the symptom, uh, trying to clarify that it's real, and but it doesn't always directly relate to the severity of their underlying disease, um, that it is very important to actually raise with their medical professionals. Um, I think being really careful about the language um, you use when describing mechanisms underpinning breathlessness. So it's not always about oxygen or carbon dioxide or a weak heart or muscular function. And I think sometimes people, patients, can in fact misinterpret an explanation which uses the word oxygen to mean that it's always about oxygen. And then that raises the issues of, quite logically, why won't my doctor give me ambulatory oxygen? So if they don't meet the criteria, or how come I'm still breathless when my saturation levels are normal? So I think being careful about the words you use when you're explaining it. Um, I think some of the other things that the experts recommended that you try to avoid in conversations about breathlessness were um, moral judgments. So the kind of it's, you know, recompense for bad lifestyle choices 
or that it's not worth treating in its own right. So treating the symptom right now, even without, even if you didn't have a diagnosis, some of those quick wins that Kylie just spoke about, um, immediate sort of strategies for people, fan therapy, positioning, that type of thing. And I think probably one of the big things that, that Delphi recommended of trying to avoid in conversations is implying that nothing can be done or that it's quite hopeless and you just have to put up with it. So given um, all of the different things discussed, do you think that there is one good standard explanation that healthcare um, professionals could use when talking about breathlessness so they could go to this explanation um, and use that for everyone who experiences breathlessness? Um, the short answer is probably no. I don't. I, don't yeah. uh, I think in terms of, do I think there is one standard explanation for every person who presents with breathlessness, irrespective of their uh, underlying condition, their social standing, their ethnicity? Uh, no. And I think there probably never is going to be. Having said that, I think um, I think pretty much. Most health professionals, I think, do have good basic go-to explanations for particular situations with particular conditions. And in some of those conditions, they will be more likely to actually have an oxygen um, cause, if you like, if I just summarise it that way. And there'll be other conditions where, in fact, oxygen really isn't the, the main thing that's leading to this sensation of breathlessness at this point with this patient. I think you raise a really good question. I think that notion of will we ever have a standard explanation, I think the answer is no, but I actually think that's an area which would be well worth investing research into in terms of does it make a difference in particular situations? The kinds of explanations that people use. Do patients find particular words more useful, less useful, threatening? And again, pain science is, is way ahead of breathlessness science in this area. You don't have to search very hard to find articles in musculoskeletal space, low back pain, osteoarthritis, cancer for, and is another area where they have got a body of work looking at particular terms and how these are interpreted by patients and whether or not that has a knock-on effect for their behaviour. So the classic example is in osteoarthritis with knee pain that where explanations include the terms wear and tear, that patients have a greater probability of actually interpreting that to mean they need to be careful and reduce their movements to actually avoid the wear, additional wear and tear because this joint needs protecting. Now, I think we've got a long way to go in the area of um, dyspnea, breathlessness science, in terms of trying to find out whether there are particular words that might have those kinds of connotations as well. So rather than one script um, mm. that we give everyone, it's more so there's phrases or words or explanations that we find to be helpful um, mm. and in different contexts and for different people. And then on the other side, 
different phrases that um, we find to be unhelpful and that we can kind of use those to craft individual explanations. Yeah, I do. And I think, look, the classic example that has come up in a number of papers, and we've mentioned it a couple of times in this um, podcast, is the term nothing more can be done. Now, that does come up in um, interviews with carers, interviews with people living with actual breathlessness, and it's not that difficult to imagine how hopeless that kind of phrase is for someone living with this actual condition, how it limits the possibilities of being able to cope better or do the things that people want to do. Now, I don't have any other studies beyond those, but I actually suspect that that term would be generally thought of as being a non-helpful term. Especially when we know that something can be done. Yeah, exactly. So then moving on, I guess, to some more practical questions. Um, What advice would you have for healthcare professionals who work with people living with breathlessness, if they had unlimited time or weren't time limited, how could people start conversations about um, breathlessness? And what are some key points that you should discuss or, or to discuss, sorry, or questions to ask? So we've, um, I think we've covered a couple of these already. So firstly, just acknowledging the distress and then um, clarifying that something can be done. But is there anything that you want to add to that? Um, I think if your question's about, okay, how could a health professional start a conversation? Okay, and again, I'm just going to keep repeating my mantra of before having any kind of conversations, it's really worthwhile all health professionals reflecting on what they actually believe about breathlessness as a symptom, what they expect about this symptom and whether they're able to have anything to do, can you do anything with someone living with this symptom? So I think that's worth it. I think probably a, a really good starting, a, a way of starting a conversation um, with someone living with breathlessness could easily be use a, a routinely use a breathlessness assessment. Okay, now the 2012 ATS statement on dyspnea, even though it's quite old now, it does actually have some really useful guidance about um, assessment of breathlessness, ways of assessing it, and a whole range of tools. So you could choose to use a very unidimensional, quick uh, rating scale like a VAS or a numeric rating scale. You might need to think about whether you're going to rate breathlessness intensity or breathlessness unpleasantness. Okay, and maybe unpleasantness is more meaningful clinically to a patient and yourself. Or you, even better, you might want to consider a very specific uh, multidimensional assessment tool like the Dyspnea 12, which is UK developed, or the multidimensional Dyspnea profile, which is USA developed both of which have got really strong psychometric properties. And these specifically assess the sensation rather than impact on activities or quality of life. So if you routinely assessed breathlessness with an instrument, it provides you with an opportunity to explore or start that conversation. So you could ask somebody about rating their breathlessness unpleasantness on a VAS, And you could literally have a conversation stemming from that in terms of, look, I see you've rated your breathlessness X. Can you help? 
we understand what it feels like when you have difficulty breathing? You know, what words would you use to help me understand? Okay, and descriptors matter. Um, or you could use it as a jump off point for, you know, what have you stopped doing because of your breathlessness? You know, when was the last time you did that? And is that something you want to, be able to do again? You can open the door for conversations like, well, how do you and your partner or family manage when you're really breathlessness? What do you actually do? What's worked for you? What hasn't worked for you? And I think it's actually a really useful question to ask, what do you think is going on inside your body when you're short of breath? Are there things that worry you or frighten you about your breathlessness? So those sorts of questions, those sorts of conversations might give you a, a really good starting point or insight into areas of confusion, okay, things that actually the patient has believes is going on in their body but in fact might not be um, a great interpretation. It'll certainly give you some idea of the impact and it might start you on that pathway of what strategies or resources might be helpful for this person to manage the symptom, not necessarily the disease, but to manage the symptom. Would you add anything, Kylie? I think um, once you've used that, those kinds of tools and questions, you're, they build on, building on these conversation starters will help take you into what's your key messages that you want to get across if you've only got a short amount of time you know you've got five minutes or something like that um, it's still worth carrying on and giving some key messages um, we have done some field testing of what messages about breathlessness are valued most by people living with this symptom. And they seem to fall into two main categories. So one is sort of looking at the question, why am I still breathless, even though I'm doing everything the doctor, the physio ordered. So there's some messages there. And the second um, main area is what can be done. Um, so I guess in, the, in that first um, group of messages, the valued messages were that breathlessness is not only one sensation. So if people are opening up that it's making them feel frustrated, it's making them feel depressed, it means that they can't um, do the things that they want to do. That's the point to go in and acknowledge that and say, you know, yes, that absolutely is how it is. The breathlessness you're feeling is not going to be the same as someone else who has breathlessness and only you can explain that to us. Then it's also an opportunity to give the message that it's recognised that breathlessness is affected by what we think and what we feel as well as those signals coming from the body. So people may be coming in with questions like, well, my doctor says my oxygen is really good. Why am I still feeling breathless? So that opens the door to that message, which helps explain and validate. And in the second category, absolutely share some of those key messages that breathlessness science has shown us that something more can be done as well as taking the medicines and so forth. We know it's not possible perhaps to change the structure of what's going on in your lungs and your heart, but we can always influence how we think, how we feel and we behave and that can make a difference. And this can be a place for messages like while the day-to-day -day breathlessness is extremely frightening and unpleasant that day-to-day -day breathlessness in itself is not harming you and there are ways that you can recover your breathing messages about the quick wins that 
quick recovery from breathlessness, such as the evidence we have for using cooling of the face and a handheld fan, changes to breathing, which are a bit counterintuitive perhaps to what people may quickly turn to when they're feeling breathless instead of gasping and taking bigger and bigger breaths to focus on the breath out, simple changes to the body. On the, and that's kind of tied up with that breathing vicious cycle. If people are, when you open the conversation door, I'm talking more about their, their thoughts, their emotions, their understandings, then perhaps challenging some of those unhelpful thoughts can give an amazingly quick turnaround. And then those longer term strategies that you want to engage people in, um, such as pulmonary rehabilitation or cardiac rehabilitation where making themselves moderately breathless by being active isn't harmful but it's good for your breathing in the longer term so in short what people want and what we can offer them is firstly acknowledging that you know complexity that multi-dimensional nature and saying yes this ties up with what we are learning about breathlessness and secondly support them to plan and to make those evidence-informed choices and for this the breathing thinking functioning model is really helpful rather than feeling passive and feeling hopeless so they go out of that conversation um, feeling not not being having unrealistic expectations that we're going to click our fingers and take all that breathlessness away um, but that something can be done. You said something really interesting there Kylie about um, harm and how pulmonary rehabilitation can actually help. So I think bringing it back to the context of if you're a physiotherapist or an exercise physiologist and you're talking to someone with breathlessness who's about to start or thinking about starting pulmonary rehab, um, do you want to just expand on some of those key um, explanations or key concepts to talk to um, someone about their breathlessness with exercise? Yeah, so I guess that was my entry point into that breathing, thinking, functioning model, as I said. And I'm, I'm sure that um, many, almost probably all um, practitioners who are involved in pulmonary rehab have, have had this conversation without sort of realising that they are challenging people's, people's um, understanding. So that, yes, they will feel breathless when they are exercising, but that they are there are strategies that they can take a pause they can use the fan they can change their position they will recover from their from their breathing difficulty that they're experiencing in the moment but that over time if they were to stop exercising as soon as they experienced any breathlessness that would exacerbate that vicious cycle of becoming less and less able um, we can still impact the other systems of the body, the muscles um, and so forth, making them more fit so that people will be able to do more and feel less, less breathless. So that's probably the explanation that, that physios, exercise physiologists are used to giving. So I suppose I would encourage them also to pick up on some of those, those other cycles, the breathing and the thinking. Um, and even if they feel at first that they perhaps don't have the skills to address those um, encouraging them that challenging those perceptions is is something that they may be able to to do when they learn learn a little bit more and feel a little bit more comfortable themselves with understandings of breathlessness science always referring on having a multidisciplinary team around um, is really important as well yeah, that's a really important message, I think, to end that um, question on is um, the importance of having a multidisciplinary team. So given um, 
there is a lot to talk about breathlessness and we've said all these really important points um, to say or questions to ask. Murray, you mentioned early um, at the top of this podcast about how respiratory trainees often say that they don't have enough time to bring up breathlessness or to talk about breathlessness. So what about the situation where you had five minutes or less? Um, do you think it's still worth starting these conversations? Um, and if yes, what are some practical strategies where you can um, you know, do something in that five minutes, but um, acknowledge that you are time limited? Yeah, and, and look, all health professionals are time limited. So um, I think advising people to spend an hour talking about breathlessness is, is generally not going to be taken up. But if, if I had minutes, okay, so um, I think the, the thing that I would ask is, is breathlessness, do you want to talk about breathlessness? Okay, so I would see whether this is something of interest to this particular patient if I haven't already discussed it. And then I probably would um, ask more about what it's like. So I would try and get some sense of, is this really frightening, really horrible? They don't want to bring it up. They think something terrible is going on inside their body. Um, they haven't raised it with their doctor yet. So really it would depend on what information is coming back. Equally, if I asked somebody, um, look, you know, I'm just wondering how you're going with your breathlessness, you know, and they said, no, it's not a problem, never have a problem with it. People keep asking me about it, you know, then I'm likely to not pursue down that line. So I would be very much guided by um, is this a conversation that people want to have? But obviously, depending on the condition, depending on why you're seeing this person, for many of these chronic conditions, it is a very common symptom. So I would always ask and I would try and have a standard assessment, okay, rather than just the throwaway documentation of patient reports, mild shortness of breath or something like that. That's what I would do if I had five minutes. Kylie, what would you do? <laughs> um, I think I sort of tried tried to say it in my in my last response. It's, it's kind of two parts: acknowledging the problem, find out what matters to them. You know, what is it they've stopped doing because of breathlessness? Is it? And then from that conversation, is there a quick strategy that's going to give them immediate relief? And often for me, that is the handheld fan or it's changing the way someone's breathing or it's acknowledging the link between breathlessness and anxiety so something simple like that can really help people walk out of your consulting room or your exercise class feeling like they've got something positive in their pocket then um, going on to incorporate the understanding about how important exercise is and to use those quick win strategies so that they can get the longer term win of something like pulmonary rehabilitation. Um, that's my short answer. <laughs> so I think the two key points there are firstly acknowledging the symptoms. So whether um, you might want to use a standardized assessment tool like those multi-dimensional tools, the multi-dimensional dyspnea profile and the dyspnea 12, and then that can um, both assess the symptom and then get the person to start talking about it. Um, and then the second is having maybe a 
toolbox of quick ideas that you can um, provide to people based on their different situations that can provide a quick um, relief, I guess, of their symptom in the meantime, and maybe even um, having some standard resources that you go to or that you provide to people um, so that they can read those in their own time if you don't have the time um, to talk the person through it in your consult or your um, opportunity of conversation with that person. Yeah, I think so. So an understanding of the key evidence-based interventions, both short-term, longer-term, um, and ones that are going to involve the uh, family, the carer as well. And also just have up your sleeve some key messages that are informed by breathlessness science, which is some of those things that Murray and I have sort of been talk talking about over this conversation that we've mentioned about it, you know, breathlessness being affected by what we think and feel, as well as the signals from the body. When breathlessness um, is day-to-day, -day, not in itself harmful, ways you can recover about being active, being good for your breathing in the longer term. So you're not going to use everyone for every person, but just um, have those understandings in a way that's jargon-free and able to be understood. Yeah. Carly, yeah. would you, do, do you have any go-to um, resources? Like do you um, send people to various websites, either health professionals or patients? Yeah, um, certainly the Cambridge Breathlessness Intervention Service site is great and they've added resources for breathlessness related to COVID-19 as well. I also used the resources from St Christopher's Hospice. They've made a series of videos about managing breathlessness which is um, uses the breathing thinking functioning framework. I find those really helpful for health professionals and for um, people experiencing breathlessness themselves. So that's a couple off the top of my head. Yeah, that provides the listeners um, definitely with some places to go um, to look for resources and then they can perhaps use those resources themselves when they're talking to people about their breathlessness. Thank you for joining me today to talk about this very important topic of how to talk about um, breathlessness. Thank you, Hayley. It's been a pleasure, Hayley.